From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come warm yourself by the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. I like and I admire iconoclasts. I respect people who walk in through the outdoor. They walk against the arrows in supermarkets and Ikea. Those people, I believe, are vitally important to a healthy society and a functioning democracy. And this program exists in part to push back against official narratives, state-sanctioned reality, groupthink. And I celebrate those who have the courage to shout out, the emperor has no clothes, which brings me to Tony Heller. Tony is such a person. He is deserving of a place on this radio platform. Tony has examined the scientific data underpinning the claims of global warming alarmists and found the data to be lacking. His presentations and videos challenging the state-sanctioned religion of man-made or anthropogenic climate change have been viewed by millions on YouTube and Twitter, and people often email me and ask, why don't you have a real climate scientist on? Why do I entertain these climate deniers, quote, end quote, which is a most odious and sinister phrase, that denier. I'll tell you why, because you can see them on every news outlet, every mainstream media outlet, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I am doing my very small part to provide equal time. So if you would rather listen to another so-called expert talk about how the earth is heating up and it's all man's fault. And if we don't give up our cars and private property and start living in stacked houses in large urban centers and ride public transit, you have an entire universe of media outlets to choose from. Pick one. Tony Heller describes himself as a whistleblower, an independent thinker who's considered a heretic on both sides of the climate debate. I also like heretics. Did I mention that? He's enjoyed a broad career in science, education, environment, and engineering, and he utilizes the same skill set and techniques to analyze climate science claims that he's used in science and engineering. Tony has a Bachelor of Science degree in geology and participated in geothermal, oil shale, thermodynamics of methane hydrates, and volcanic research at Los Alamos National Labs. He has a master's degree in electrical engineering and has served as a computer architect at Sandia Labs, part of the consortium team at Compaq, and the design manager for Hitachi's STSH5 microprocessor. He's a lifelong environmentalist who first testified before Congress in 1972 in support of wilderness. He fought for the Clean Air and Water Act. Tony points out that he does not receive any funding from anyone other than small donations to his blog, which works out to about $5 an hour. I can relate. He says he hates cars and would love to see 90% of them off the road. And you can read Tony's blogs and watch his vlogs at realclimatescience.com. Tony Heller, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Thanks for having me on. You were recently, now I don't know if you were entirely deplatformed. What happened with you on YouTube recently? Well, my channel had been kind of taken off 
it looked sort of like Michael Mann's hockey stick. The number of views was skyrocketing. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, is up to, I think, 6 million views during September. And I had one day, I think it was like September 14th, where I had 400,000 views. So, so things were doing really well, and I was getting you know lots of traction. So, of course, YouTube decided they needed to um, shut me down. I think I just looked at my email one day last week, and it said that I, had, I was locked out of my account because I had shown a video of a German doctor who was arrested at an anti-lockdown protest in London, and they said that you're not allowed to question the authority of the World Health Organization. <laughs> that was their that was their motivation for taking me out. But I knew they were they were looking to take me down because um, I've been getting all kinds of emails from them for several weeks saying that they were manually scanning my videos and just finding one complaint after another. I've put a lot of videos out there, thousands and thousands of them, and they've got people who are manually watching them. So obviously someone's paying to find any dirt they can find, you know, any excuse they can to take me down. So my channel's down for a week, but I'm not really planning on going back to YouTube that much um, after I get back on. Um, there, there's a new video platform called NewTube app, and I've started using that, and I, it's much better. It's got a lot more features than YouTube has. It's open source, so if somebody takes them down, and someone else can come along and bring it up. It's open source, and it's got great features. And as the guy who runs YouTube app pointed out, is the only innovation which YouTube has done for years is new ways to spy on and censor people. Mm -hmm. they, haven't, they haven't really added any new useful features, whereas this guy's adding new features constantly. And, um, and he's very communicative, and he supports free speech. And so... I've only been on there for five days, but I think I had 20,000 views today, so it's ramping up really fast. And of course, most of my YouTube viewers have no idea what happened to me, right? I was getting hundreds of thousands of views a day, and then suddenly I just stopped making videos and there's no message. You know, they don't have any way of finding it. I can't post messages on my own channel. So they have no way of knowing what happened to me. It's sort of like the old days of Stalin making people disappear. <laughs> right. so, so I don't want to be in that position again. So when I get back on there in a couple of days, unless they find some new excuse to shut me down again, I'm just going to post videos telling people where to find me, so that explaining what was happening and, and tell them to go look for me on YouTube app. I've got almost 100,000 followers on YouTube, so I'd like to get as many of them as possible moved over to NewTube. All right. So, again, that's NewTube app, N-E-W-T-U-B-A-P-P. -P. Okay. It's NewTube, N-E-W-T-U-B-E dot app. Dot app. All right. Yeah. Fantastic. But your offense, in this case, in YouTube's eyes, was not posting the climate change videos. It, it had to do with COVID. Yeah, I just took somebody's video off Twitter of this German doctor who was arrested after speaking in Trafalgar Square in London. And the police just hauled him off, you know, for daring to tell the truth about COVID. Mm. And that, that was all that I did. I just posted a video of the guy being arrested. And that, right. was, that was enough of an excuse for YouTube to take me down. Before I get you to sort of address the various planks in the climate alarmist platform, like the, you know, the old 
97% of scientists consensus and so forth. I, I just want to ask you, do you see, while you were, were talking about COVID, and I don't want to dwell on it, but do you see any similarities between the way the official narrative of climate change is being addressed and the official narrative of the coronavirus pandemic is being handled? Oh, yeah, I think they're pretty much the same thing. I mean, if you look at, at what the goals of the Green New Deal were, they were to stop people from flying on airplanes, you know, keep people at home, keep them from traveling, keep them from using fossil fuels. And all of those goals of the Green New Deal have been achieved through COVID lockdowns. And I hear Toronto is about to get locked down again. Is that true? Uh, yes, for the second time. Yes. Right. Based on this case demic, not based on actual infections or hospital admissions, based on, you know, the drill. You've written about it, the PCR test and so forth, which the false positives and yeah, here we go again. <laughs> yeah, so I see that the COVID nonsense is pretty much an extension of the global warming stuff, only they're able to achieve their goals much faster. And the climate people have been trying to shut down the airline industry for decades. You know, I was blocked by demonstrators driving the Heathrow Airport in London around 2003. And, um, you know, they weren't having any luck with that plane travel kit building up. But they've managed to pretty much wipe out most of the airline industry in just a matter of a few weeks with the COVID scare. So, um, yeah, the parallels are tremendous. And I think it's really just an extension of what's been going on all along. And the science, what, what government's doing and what scientists are saying and who's the censorship at all, it's a very close parallel. Okay, so let's dive in. I want to start with the aforementioned 97% of scientists. We have heard this for, well, it seems like about 15 years. So where did that number first come from? I recall a tweet or something from President Obama and then later John Kerry. But what's the actual origin of the 97% of all scientists around the world believe in anthropogenic global warming and that it has dire consequences? Okay, so I got a phone call from John Cook in Australia. He's a professor at some university in Australia about 10 years ago, and he was very excited that he was doing this survey of climate people about their beliefs. And then a few days later, he came out with this study showing that 97% of scientists believe it. But that really wasn't factual at all. What he did was he just scanned through the scientific literature, tens of thousands of climate papers. He found a couple hundred where the author explicitly stated an opinion of is global warming caused primarily by man or isn't it caused primarily by man? And I guess he said that 97% of those 200 papers said that global warming was primarily caused by man. There wasn't any mention about it being dangerous or um, or worrisome or anything like that. It was just a statement of fact. And this was just a tiny sample. It was like going around looking in papers from the Catholic church, you know, Catholic priests, and saying that 97% of the letters were from people who believed that the Catholic faith was the correct faith. Right? I mean, if you look at the total body of, of 
global war of climate papers, this was only a tiny percentage of them, but he just cherry picked the ones who were true believers, basically. And, and did, then, did he even did he even analyze the entire paper, or was he basically just going off the abstract, which is kind of a summary of the of the study? I, I haven't looked at it much in detail, but what my understanding is that is that he did it off the summary. Right, yeah, right. And, and then and then Obama just took this and just he blew it up into a much bigger lie saying he tweeted 97% of climate scientists scientists believe global warming is man-made and dangerous and and you know there's no truth to that there was a, a survey of the professional members of the American Meteorological Society in 2013 which said um, where they were asked is global warming primarily man-made I think only 52% said it was, and among professional forecasters, it's only about 35%. And they weren't even asked, is it dangerous? Because they probably would have been laughed at if they did. So Obama just, you know, Obama just liked to make up stuff like that. And then after Obama said it, then it became truth, right? didn't matter whether there was any facts, whether it was factual or not. It was just, it became the liturgy of the global warming religion. Right, right. And I think John Kerry even took it a step further. Um, Now, we often hear things like average global temperature, which is kind of, I don't know, it doesn't sound right. Is there such a thing as average global temperature? What does that even mean? It's a nonsensical term for many reasons. Um, Would you really, yeah, it's like, what, what does it mean? Most of the heat in the in the Earth's climate system is hidden. It's latent heat in ice. It's heat hidden hidden in the water. So temperatures on the surface are you can't just average temperatures on the surface for a lot of reasons. You have the you have the heat of a vap, you know, cooling caused by evaporation of water. You have warming caused by the condensation of water, and the same thing with melting and freezing of ice. You have ocean circulation patterns. It's a ridiculous concept. And it's much worse than that because there's very little long-term temperature data available for the vast majority of the Earth's surface. If you look at where um, you know, Ross McKittrick at Guelph, I don't know if you ever talked to him, he, um, he did, he's published some papers showing how what terrible coverage government agencies have had from the past you know the vast majority of of the high quality data in the world is from the united states you know there's a fair amount from along the southern border of canada some from western europe and the east coast of australia but for the vast majority of the earth for south america africa most of asia antarctica the, the arctic in most of Russia, the quality of the long-term data is extremely poor. So they don't really have any idea what temperatures were like 100 years ago over most of the Earth. Now, one of the uh, things we also keep hearing is, well, this was the hottest summer on record, or four of the last five summers have been the hottest summers we've had, and so forth. And, uh, I mean, you are, uh, if I can use the term, you're a weather geek. (laughs) I mean, I love... Uh, when I when I read your tweets, you're uh, almost you'll go like on a daily basis countering many of these claims. When someone when someone will report, well, today was the hottest the hottest day in Minneapolis in you know on record, 
and then you'll you'll go into the uh, the archives and you'll pull up the actual stats and say, no, the hottest was in 1927, and then the next hottest was in 1934. I'm I'm making those figures up, but so talk to me about the hottest, the, the claim that you know the last several summers have been the hottest on record. Where does that right. come from? Yeah, so, okay, so, well, it, it's just complete nonsense <laughs> it, uh, to give you the short answer, but to give you some more details, as I, as I just mentioned, the vast majority of high-quality data, um, daily temperature data on the Earth is from the United States by a wide margin. Probably 80 to 90 percent of the NOAA daily temperature data is United States data. You know, we've been in a good position here where we haven't had any, had any wars fought on our territory, and people have just been consistently keeping good, high-quality data since the end of the 19th century. And in the United States, it's summers are much cooler now than they were prior to 60 years ago. It's not even close. You know, if you read Steinbeck about the grapes of wrath when five million people fled the heat and drought of the Midwest and the moved dust out to, yeah, the dust yeah, the dust, yeah, yeah, moved out to California. The country was incredibly hot, and prior to about 1955, the U.S. summers in the U.S. were much hotter. We, we had incredible temperatures, and same thing in Canada. You know, Canada's hottest temperature occurred, I believe, in 19, July 1937, I think, or 1936. It was like 113 degrees Fahrenheit in Saskatchewan, I believe. And so it was, it was very very similar in southern Canada, at least the United States. It was very hot from the 1910s to the mid-1950s, and summers have been much cooler ever since the mid-1950s in the United States. So it's totally fake. So the other day, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, was saying 130, it was 130 degrees in Death Valley, which is arguably the hottest temperature ever recorded on Earth. And this is complete nonsense. Death Valley in the year 1913, the U.S. Weather Bureau has very detailed records for it. They had three days in one week when Death Valley was over 130 degrees. It was 134, 131, and 130. So this year's 130 wasn't even close to that. Plus, there's an article I, I found from the San Francisco Chronicle from 1859 where it was 133 degrees in um, in um, Los Angeles County from downslope winds during 1859. In the New York Times, I go through the New York Times archives, they have lots of mentions of temperatures over 130 degrees in Death Valley. So you, so you just get these politicians like Obama and Newsom making up fake statistics, and then they just throw it out there, and then it becomes the truth. But it's, it's not based on actual data. You know, the 1930s were much hotter than recent summers. It wasn't even close. Right. I think you mentioned the uh, Death Valley. The, 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 I think the hottest recorded temperature on Earth was in Furnace Creek, which I've been there. I, uh, I've stayed there. And uh, that was uh, – I'm not sure if that was 1913 or back in the 30s, but you're right. It was like 134 degrees Fahrenheit. That's the re hottest recorded temperature, I believe, uh, on Earth. Where – just uh, we're heading into a break here, uh, so we'll uh, come back and delve further into this. But um, just very quickly, very quickly, where aside from the archives from newspapers, where do you collect your data on temperature? 
Yeah, I get it all from NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. They have a very good data set. Um, they have the Global Historical Climatology Network, but a subset of that which I use the most is the United States Historical Climatology Network. And they have about 1,286 stations, I believe, around the United States where they have very good, high-quality daily temperature data, highs and lows, going back to 1895 and even a little bit before that. So I'm just using official government NOAA temperature data, the same, the same data which they use. The difference is that before they release it to the public, they manipulate it. Okay, we'll find out how they do that when we come back. Tony Heller is with us from realclimatescience.com. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. And if you have questions and comments, just keep your powder dry for the first hour, and we will open up the phone lines in the second hour to take your questions and comments. Tony is with us for the full two hours, realclimatescience.com, and he will now be posting his, his videos to newtube.app, newtube.app, and the channel is just Tony Heller. Is that right, Tony? Yeah, that's correct. All right, newtube.app, and of course, you can also follow him uh, on Twitter. Is that at, at Tony Climate? Uh, no, my my Twitter is Tony is is Tony underscore underscore Heller. Okay, Tony underscore yeah. Heller. All right. Uh, so the um, NASA says that the world is getting warmer. There are thermometer readings around the world, and I want to ask you about the placement of these thermometers, these temperature stations. They, they, they claim they've been rising since the Industrial Revolution, and the causes are a blend of human activity and some natural variability, uh, with the preponderance of evidence saying humans are mostly responsible. According to an ongoing, and I'm reading from the website here, earthobservatory.nasa.gov earthobservatory.nasa.gov. According to an ongoing temperature analysis conducted by scientists at NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, the average global temperature on Earth has increased by a little more than one degree Celsius or two degrees Fahrenheit since 1880. Two-thirds of the warming has occurred since 1975 at a rate of roughly 0.15 to 0.2 degrees centigrade per decade. Uh, so, what what is wrong with, or where is the uh, NASA Earth Observatory wrong? Well, th- what they're saying is just propaganda. As I pointed out before the break, they don't have, they have very little long-term data for the vast majority of the Earth's surface. So they're just making up numbers largely, and if and if you look at older versions of the temperature record, like um, I, I posted a video the other day showing how it had been changed since around 1989. In 1989, NOAA said that um, that Earth cooled from I believe 1921 to 1979, but now they show a lot of warming during that same period. And there was a um, graph from the very faint, well-published 
publicized graph from the National Center for, Mass- for Atmospheric Research from 1974, which showed a huge amount of cooling from the 194 from about 1940 until 1970. But now, if you look at the current graphs from NOAA and NASA, that's gone. They've completely erased that. So. Th- it, it, like I said, it's just propaganda. There's no scientific basis for what they're saying. And if we go back further, you know, what they're trying to do is they want to blame what they they claim. They claim there's this temperature rise. They want to blame it on carbon dioxide. But if we go back in time to periods like 6,000 years ago, when Stonehenge was built, the Arctic was ice free, and there were trees growing all the way up to the edge of the Arctic Ocean. I mean, um, Dr. Tim Ball from Vancouver, you know, has pointed, been pointing, he's Canada's senior climatologist, has been pointing this out for years. So it was, we know it was much warmer 6,000 years ago than it is now, but carbon dioxide levels were much lower. We also know that Earth was much warmer um, 1,000 years ago during the medieval warm period. Of course, Michael Mann has come along and tried to erase that, but the evidence is overwhelming based on glaciers. There were very few glaciers in North America a thousand years ago. There were very few glaciers in the Alps. Um, and then most of the glaciers formed during the Little Ice Age, um, going up until about, they reached their peak maybe around 1850, and then they've been melting since 1850. But there's no there's no correlation with carbon dioxide. It's just, you know, they've, they've made up there's tons of money pouring into the scientific community and the academic community to keep this global warming story going. And these people are just consultants. You know, they're being paid to, to to make up stories about global warming, so they do it. So when they're measuring the temperature, when they're taking Earth's temperature, are these a combination of temperature stations on the ground and also satellite temperatures of the various – uh, levels of the atmosphere. What are they measuring? Well, the the, the stuff which you hear, you know, the, the global warming stuff is based on surface temperatures. It's based on thermometers on the ground, and they also claim that they have data from the ocean, which is incredible. Was even worse than the data from the land. Uh, but the satellite temperatures are are largely ignored because they show much less warming than. Than um, NOAA and then NASA and NOAA are advertising. So you know there are some good satellite data sets, like from the, the University of Alabama at Huntsville. They have a good data set, but it shows much less warming than than the surface temperature record does. So NASA, you know, the Space Administration ignores their own satellite data because it gives them the wrong answer for funding. These uh, temperature stations. Do, do you know how roughly how many there are and who decides where they are placed? Well, yeah. Okay, so it, depending on which version of the data set you look like, look at it, it varies tremendously. Right now, NOAA has a pretty large set of stations, I don't know, 30,000 or something. And these were collected, most of them were collected by a group in Berkeley, Berkeley Earth. Um, but if you... And these are just sort random historical records which people kept in their backyards or newspapers. Um, it, so there's nothing really consistent to the database. 
you know, outside of the United States. Once again, the United States has, has had the Weather Bureau collecting great data for a very long time. But most of the global data is just random garbage. And if you go in and actually look at these stations, they're complete garbage. They're, they have missing data. They don't make any sense. You'll have one station trending upwards and another station a mile away, which is trending downwards. And, and it's pretty obvious that... Um, you know, they're just using garbage data. They're they're throw, throwing put garbage data in. They use very dodgy techniques for analyzing it, and they come up with an answer that they want. I, I've looked a little. I, I spend most of my time looking at the United States temperature record. A few times I've dabbled into to calculating my own global temperature record, and I realized right away that you could come up with any shape graph you wanted, depending on which stations are used and which techniques he used for analyzing it so they just came up with a set of stations which works for their narrative and and that's what they're going with well i'm wondering though for instance of those thirty thousand roughly temperature stations how many of them are located in urban centers maybe at one time they were out in the country but then through urban sprawl and so forth they're now in urban centers and whether that might tilt the uh, the data because these are these are basically heat sinks these urban centers. Well, yeah, certainly the urban centers cause a huge skew the data tremendously because if you like if you like look at the data from South America, there's only a, a, maybe two or three long term stations in South America, and one of them is in Buenos Aires, right in the middle of a, one of the worst heat islands in the world, and temperatures have risen a lot in Buenos Aires over the last century because of all the concrete and the growth of the city. And then what happens is because that's the only long-term station they've got in that area, and they've got all these fragmented little pieces of data from other stations around Argentina and Uruguay, what they do is they homogenize the data, so they contaminate the rural stations around there with the urban contaminated data from Buenos Aires. And, and, uh. and that, and, and and that is, you know, the so even if you have a, only have a small handful of urban stations, those are the ones which dominate, because they're the ones with the long term temperature, you know, temperature record. Right now, the problem though is, it seems to me, even if we if we have a cold snap, uh, because they've moved the goalposts and now they they don't use the, the, the term global warming. Now it's climate change. And uh, it seems to me they want to have it both ways. So now they look at uh, even record low temperatures or uh, extreme weather, which we'll get into in more detail uh, in, in a moment. Um, when did that happen? When did they stop talking about global warming and start talking about climate change? Yeah, I think um, about 10 years ago, there was this big concern that there was this global warming hiatus. Um, Richard Trenberth at the National Center for Atmospheric Research had a famous climate gate email where he said, "Where the heck is global warming? You know, we can't we can't account for the missing heat, and it's a travesty that we can't." So, so that was when they switched over from, "Okay, well, we can't. The Earth isn't really warming, so we we can't blame that on carbon dioxide. So now we're just going to take every bad weather event." and call it climate change and say it never happened before and blame that on carbon dioxide. 
And I, and I think that's been the main thing going on ever since then. And, 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 what, and that just completely relied, that whole extreme, well, I, I know you said you're going to get into that in a minute, but that whole extreme weather, climate change link is just based on ignorance of history, just that people, they, they know that people don't know about past bad weather. And, and they can show it on, you know, we have a fire in California, and they show it on CNN over and over and over and over again and just makes people think that the whole world's burning up. Uh, we, we will uh, address uh, wildfires in California. Four million acres, uh, I believe, to date have burned. And we'll, uh, we'll talk about extreme weather and whether there is any connection to carbon dioxide levels in our atmosphere. Back with more of my conversation with Tony Heller, Real Science, uh, realclimatescience.com, and his, uh, his videos can be found at newtube.app. Back with more in a moment. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarin. So, Tony, I, tr- I want to try to understand the science behind the climate change logic here. The idea that concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which is f- roughly 400 parts per million. Do we look to chemistry to figure this out or is it physics? I'm trying to get inside their head. How do they believe that increasing concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere will cause an increase in global temperatures. What is their science? Well, I worked on radiative transfer models for the National Center for Atmospheric Research. And so it's sort of the traditional theory which has been thrown out there is that you get heat radiate infrared light radiating off of the surface of the Earth. The Earth's the Earth surface gets warm by sunlight. And then you get infrared light radiating off the surface. Um, and then in certain spectral bands, it gets absorbed by carbon dioxide molecules on the way up, which excites the molecule. Then the idea is that it releases a new photon back down towards the ground, which sort of traps heat. And you know this is a principle which has been understood for a very long time, more than 100 years, um, that this idea of the greenhouse effect – but it's also been understood for a long time, and if you look at the radiative transfer models, which I've worked on, the effect is minimal. Most of the greenhouse effect from carbon dioxide occurs in the first 30 parts per million. And then when you add more carbon dioxide after that, the increase in the amount of heat, which it's retaining, becomes less and less because it becomes close to saturation. There's enough carbon dioxide in the atmosphere now to absorb almost all of the radiation in the spectral bands of carbon dioxide um, as it is. And this was shown by Newt Angstrom in the year 1901, experimentally. So this has been known for 120 years. So what happened was James Hansen came along. He realized that nobody was going to believe that carbon dioxide itself was a big problem so about 20 years ago he came up with his feedback theories that you know what happens is you get this little bit of warming caused by carbon dioxide but then that melts the polar ice caps and which makes the the 
lowers the Earth's albedo, and then you get more sunlight absorbed absorbed by the oceans, and that heats up and just spirals out of control, and pretty soon everything burns up, and all the polar bears die, and the people die, and the cities drown, and all that. So it's not really the carbon dioxide itself that was traditionally the problem. It was the feedbacks, but now they've they've just completely blown all that away, and now they just fearmonger about carbon dioxide, and it doesn't really have any. It has very little scientific basis. So the feedback theory, I mean, has yeah. that been published in peer-reviewed journals? Has it been, has it been properly vetted, or has it just been accepted whole as bolus? Well, I'm I'm sure I'm certain that Hansen has published it in journals, but the fact that something's peer-reviewed doesn't mean that it's valid you know most um, you know most peer-reviewed science that i've looked at is just complete garbage um but yeah but that but that's what it's based on but they've sort of thrown that out they don't even talk about the feedbacks anymore now it's just scary carbon dioxide's going to burn us up so it's this rate radiative transfer model is that yeah. what you called it uh what about the role of of water vapor or methane yeah, water vapor is by far the dominant greenhouse gas in the mid-latitudes. Um, and and, and it, the, the spectral bands of water vapor are much wider than they are for carbon dioxide. And they essentially all overlap with the carbon dioxide bands. So if you have a lot of water vapor in the atmosphere like we typically do in the summer... Um, the carbon dioxide has almost no green has almost no additional greenhouse effect. Um, carbon dioxide probably has more effect down in Antarctica, um, where there's very little water vapor in the atmosphere. But in the mid latitudes, where you know the United States and Canada and Europe and most of the world's population is located, um, carbon dioxide has very little impact on summer temperatures. So just to repeat, you're saying that after 30 parts per million, uh, there is no – there's no substantial radiative transfer happening with carbon dioxide. It's well, it's the, kind of the laws of diminishing returns. Right. It, it's you, you get less and less effect from adding more carbon dioxide above 30 parts per million. And we're up – where we're up now, it's – it's just it's a very minimal increase in the amount of um, effect, and, and there was a very famous paper by this from NASA in 1971 by Rasul and Schneider, who were NASA's top climatologists, and they explained this in great detail that you can't have a runaway greenhouse effect. So they said even if you increase carbon dioxide in the atmosphere by a factor of 10, it still wouldn't produce a runaway greenhouse effect. Um, and later this all, um, Schneider later on changed his mind at the end of the decade when he realized there was more money to be made in global warming than in global cooling at that time. And they actually predicted that there would be a new ice age within 50 years. I remember, been- I remember seeing, maybe I saw it online, but I saw uh, uh, it was Amer- a scientific American headline to that effect. You know, be- beware global uh, cooling, beware the next ice age. That was all the rage back in the uh, in the uh, the early 1970s. We'll take a quick time out, Tony, and we'll come back and and pick up on some of these points. Tony Heller, RealClimateScience.com, and uh, his new video platform, NewTube.app. Back with more. Stay with us. 
You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Uh, Tony, I've talked to Patrick Moore, the co-founder of Greenpeace. Uh, I had him on uh, Coast to Coast AM with me, and he said that at 400 parts per million carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere, we're really uh, on a carbon dioxide starvation diet, I think he, he called it, because uh, for optimum plant growth, you need about 1,200 parts per million, and he, he cited farmers that will pump carbon dioxide into their greenhouses to that level, 1,200 parts uh, per million. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I mean, the, NASA has stated quite openly that Earth has gotten greener over the last 50 years. And it's probably largely due to the increase in carbon dioxide. Carbon life is if you, if you look at remember photosynthesis from you know elementary school, they taught you that what plants need to grow is they need sunlight, they need water, they need chlorophyll, and they need carbon dioxide. That's where the carbon material which the plant's made of comes from from carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So if, if there's more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the plants grow faster. And most of our coal beds um, you know, were, came from, you know, my undergraduate degree is in geology. And geologists were always considered the traditional climate scientists until climate modelers hijacked the term. But most of our coal beds formed during the Carboniferous period, when carbon dioxide levels started out much higher than they are now. And this caused a huge amount of life, you know, vegetation to grow, which then the plants died, they went, they fell into peat beds until later turned into coal. So carbon dioxide levels are, car, higher carbon dioxide levels are very good for life. In fact, if you go back 540 million years to the, to the Cambrian era, that was when the greatest explosion of life on Earth occurred. Um, carbon dioxide levels were at their all-time peak, about, about 20 times higher than they are now. And life exploded in the oceans, and corals and shellfish evolved at that time, which shows us that the ocean acidification stuff is nonsense. You know, it's, there's no scientific – there's no question in, in the geologic community – that carbon, that life has thrived at much higher carbon dioxide levels than they are now. Is there any level of carbon dioxide concentration that would be injurious to humans? Yeah, I mean, certain, certainly if you got up, I think something like, so I think on submarines, carbon dioxide levels can get up to like 8,000 parts per million, and that's probably not healthy. And even on a train, if you're on a crowded train, carbon dioxide levels can get up to 6,000, 7,000 parts per million. And, you know, it obviously, if, if you're not getting, an, if you've got too much carbon dioxide, you're not getting enough oxygen, it's going to you know, reduce the amount of oxygen getting into your blood vessels in your brain, and that's not a good thing, but we're nowhere near that point now. And in fact, when you exhale, your lungs breathe in oxygen and you exhale carbon dioxide, you're exhaling about 40,000 parts per million carbon dioxide, um, which is, you know, 100 times higher than what you inhale. So your lungs are used to having 40,000 parts per million in them. Interesting. All right. Now, um, 
we'll we'll get into this in the next hour as well and we'll open up the phone calls but let's let's start the discussion on a number of other sort of planks in the uh, the climate uh, alarmists platform and one of those is melting sea ice that the as you mentioned there, there were periods in our history when there was no ice at the north or south pole but we are now in basically we're still in a kind of an interglacial period right we still have ice um, in, in, in the North and South Pole. But to the argument that the ice is melting, let's say in the Arctic, and we'll, we'll deal with the Antarctic later. Yeah, well, there's, um, you know, the, for during the 1970s, we had this Ice Age scare, right? And I've got an article from the New York Times about how the U.S. and Soviet Union were mounting these big white-scale studies about the large increase in the amount of ice in the Arctic and whether that led to ice ages. And the ports in um, Iceland were blocked with ice during the 1970s for the first time in 100 years. So during the 1970s, it was very cold. Um, a lot of ice built up in the Arctic. You know, the, the polar ice cap in the Arctic Ocean became very thick. And then um, starting around the early 1980s, it started to melt again. There was There was... Um, there was a lot of ice loss during the first half of the 20th century, going up to about 1960s, and then the ice started building up again. And, but then since about 1980, it's been declining again, so it's very cyclical. Um, and right now, we're in a period where the Arctic ice is declining. And so, they're, of course, they're saying it's due to carbon dioxide, but it probably doesn't have anything to do with that. Um, there was all kinds of – I've got – hundreds of newspaper stories from the 1920s, people saying in the 1930s, ice is disappearing. Um, there was a, a famous, uh, the, probably the best-known Arctic expert, um, Dr. Hans Allman from Sweden and Caltech University. He, he, he said in 1939 that the glaciers of Greenland and Norway are melting so quickly there's a danger of catastrophic collapse. This is from 1939. But then we went through this cold period in the 70s. The ice came back. And, of course, that's where they, where Arctic alarmists start all their graphs is right at the end of this cold period around 1979. Uh, I'm just reading here from the World Wildlife uh, website, worldwildlife.org, uh, stating, We lose Arctic sea ice at a rate of almost 13% per decade, and over the past 30 years – the oldest and thickest ice in the Arctic has declined by a stunning 95%. True or false? Well, there's probably some truth to that. But once again, it goes back to why did they start 30 years ago? We have we have Arctic ice records going back 100 years. There was um, a report that the Department of Energy put out a report in 1985, which showed Arctic ice going back 100 years. And there was a big decline from around 1920 until the mid-1950s. Um, so they ignore all that, right? They, they start they start right at the peak in 1979. It's like if you start at the top of a mountain, any direction you look is going to be downhill. And so right. what they do is they, they cherry pick the peak date and start their graphs from then. Well, you, you've, you've posted a number of videos, an entire series on how the data is manipulated because of the start date. And I know on radio, without benefit of, of uh, visuals, it's kind of hard 
maybe well it would be for me to explain this but you're much better at this than i am but so just yeah talk to me a little bit about not only for sea ice but sea levels and and forest fires and and uh extreme weather uh property destruction you you presented a number of graphs and it it, it's all you say manipulated based on when they start you know illustrating the data Exactly, and that's that's exactly what they do. They find a low point or a high point, an inflection point to start their graphs at, and then say um, fires are going up since such and such date, or sea ice is going down since such and such date, or heat. You know, they, they do this with heat waves. They do with everything. But if you go back and you look at the longer term record, you can see what they did. That they they just picked a low point or a high point, which to suit their purposes. And with forest fires, that's a great example. You know, the burn acreage in the United States was much higher during the 1930s. About ten times higher during the 1930s or five or ten times higher in the 1930s than it is now. But what they do is they go back and they start right around, I think, they think they start their forest fire graphs around 1963, I believe. But if you look at the data before that, there was much more burn acreage. And if you go back, and I've researched government papers about pre-industrial era burn acreage, which they've, which they've established from looking at tree ring data. They, they said there was at least 10 times as much burn acreage in the United States prior to when um, humans settled here. And and there was an article in the New York Times from 1993 talking about these massive fires, which they used to have in California, which came about once every five years. They were associated with La Nina events. They burned major conflagrations across the California mountains. And they said, the western United States was a very smoky place before humans lived here. Right. I mean, when you think of it on the face of it, the idea that if uh, if you were to turn the temperature up in your house, the thermostat, set it one degree higher or even five degrees higher, that all of a sudden the house is going to go up in flames uh, on that level alone. And obviously I'm, I'm simplifying. It makes no sense. But we'll uh, take a time out. Top of the hour awaits. On the other side, more Tony Heller and your phone calls right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. 